Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I'm joined by Adahide Mestad and Elena Kazlas. Ada and Elena, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. So to get started, for those who don't know you, would you tell our dear listeners who you are and uh, what you do? Maybe we'll start with you, Ada. Yeah, so I am a design anthropologist. I work at HGA, which is an architectural design and engineering company. I have been there for five years, and part of my work is within what's called the Design Insight Group. It's a research and an innovation arm within HGA that has brilliant various researchers in a variety of ways. Anthropologists like myself, evidence-based designers, data analytics, lean process. So it's a really, we like to say, a, a positive collision of different ways of doing work. I also, before joining the architecture side, I twofold. My graduate degree is from George Washington University, my master's in museum studies. I am a museum enthusiast. I grew up in museums. I grew loving everything that museums had. And then I used to run a variety of nonprofits for urban transformation and particularly a museum itself before I moved to the other side. Wow. That is awesome. Okay. Elena, that's amazing. That's super cool. I have some thoughts about that. But uh, Elena, I'd love to hear what you're up to, where you've been and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the uh, founder and creator of a company called Elevated, and we provide strategic, economic, and management consulting and advisory services for museums and other attractions, as well as spaces, public spaces. And before I founded Elevative, I worked for over 20 years in about 120 varying museum and other projects, assisting them in the market and business planning elements. And prior to that, Jonathan, I've known you since the start of my career when we both worked for the Chemayev brothers. And I was working for Peter Chemayev, the architect out of a spinoff company called Idea. So my first kind of job on the ground was uh, building one of the largest aquariums in the world at the time in Lisbon, Portugal, the Oceania de Lisboa. And I got my hand, my, my career started in looking and understanding the impacts of good design or like the qualitative elements of projects and how we can quantify them in terms of dollars. I started my career doing that and have continued doing that. And that's what the speciality that we have at Elevative is balancing qualitative and quantitative elements, which relates to actually what we're going to be talking about today, both big and thick data. Okay. So you all have like the coolest jobs ever. We got, we've got like museum going on. We've got like architecture going on all over the place. And we've got like data science. The dear listener is thinking, like, can I be them? Because that's, that's the recipe for parents who have kids going to college. What should you do? I'd love to be in museums. You should probably be in data analytics. But I can do both. You just made the day of countless people who'd like to go into the field. I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm switching careers. Okay, we should probably start talking about what we're going to start talking about. All right, here we go. As always, I know our list for today, but not much more, and my guests have the rest. Our topic for today is museum research, big data meets thick data. I love that subject. I think all of us have heard about big data. I think we all need to hear about thick data and how this chocolate and this peanut butter come together to make a peanut butter cup. So 
First, we're going to talk about uh, the big data side. That's a little bit more familiar for some people. And then we'll get into the stick data side, which is awesome. Okay, so point number one on your list is big data is quantitative and thick data is qualitative. When you think about big data, you think about numbers. When you think about thick data, maybe you think about emotions and words and things like that. Do I have that right? Yes. So what yeah. is the... Um, and. Uh, Ada, for, for thick data, is it would you say it's just qualitative, your side of the puzzle, or is there more to it than that? We're talking about emotion, experience, context. Yeah, so I'm so glad, yes. So I think there's, in the big picture, quantitative, qualitative, but you can mix them in so many different ways. There's some, there can be some thick data that you can quantify. But yeah, so it's really, it's around not just emotions and behaviors. It's truly, when you say context, what does context mean? The way people see the world through their own perspective, how they view it, how they interact with it. And then the world can be scalable, can truly be the world. It could be the community they are in. It could be the museum they're visiting. And so it's really understanding the perspectives, the emotions, the sense of representation, all of those aspects fall under. So it's a little broader than emotions, but everything is fueled by an emotion, but it has a reaction to it. And it's how you perceive the world that creates that reaction. Right. Your perception of it. Yep. Okay. So that was point number one. Big data, short shorthand, big data, quantitative, thick data, qualitative. Okay. Getting into it. Number two, big data on museum visitors includes what we would think of as big data. Demographics, the origin of where they're coming from physically, I think. That's physical, right? That's How long they spend on site at the museum or the cultural place. Leisure patterns and spending patterns in near- real time. That's a real mouthful. Elena, would you unpack that a little bit? Let's talk about yes. demographics. There's some jargon in here that our dear listener might want to know about. Maybe we don't all know what demographics even means. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and so I will kind of preface the type of big da data that we're going to be speaking about today and focusing on is data that is the result of cell phone data that's been aggregated and put through an algorithm by a company called Placer AI, who I partner with. And, and then they produce these dashboards, if you will, about demographics. So what are demographics? The age of the, the visitor and then psychographics. So this is where we have, it's a little bit of an overlap with big data, a smidgen, but not really in terms of what their spending patterns are, where they like to go. We understand what are their favorite retail chains and what are their favorite restaurant chains? Where are they, what are their favorite attractions and museums that they like to go to aside from yours, or if maybe not including yours, if you want to target different audiences, maybe from different peers or from potential competitors. So the demographics would include age and then race to a certain degree, their household income and things like that. And then the other elements, the origin of where they come from. So there is the term surveillance capitalism, which is what is a result of the tracking and all the cookies that we accept, whether we're on a website or we're shopping or whatever, doing research or whatever. There's a cookie that, that emerges, right? And that you accept it. And once you accept a cookie, you're tracked. And, and so a lot of these different cell phone data aggregator or big data companies, they buy this data. It is masked, so it is private. So we don't, we can't pinpoint exactly where a visitor is coming from. When we say visitor origin, we can see within a zip code where they're actually coming from and how that maybe compares to where visitors of your peers are coming from. 
And it helps you to think about where you might want to market or do target marketing. So stay in one zip code one year, you had a lot of visitors from zip code A. And then in year two, that the number of visitors from zip code A dropped. So how can we maybe reattract them? Maybe it's through different marketing efforts. That's a very simplistic way of using the data, but it can be also very powerful. And going to the other elements that you were talking about, which I think are really important. What's amazing about big da data is that it, we can understand how visitor frequency, how often are they coming to your museum site and how long are they spending on site? And then how many times maybe they do they repeat their visit through throughout the year? That is incredible data. And even though there, there are a lot of incredible museum data softwares that are out there that, that track visitors and all of that, this adds a whole other dimension to it that it's very powerful. And then the leisure pattern element is relates to being able to see where visitors go before and after a visit to a museum site. So that's whether they go to, they go to get food, maybe at a neighboring restaurant or at an, they go to a park or whatever. It's just really interesting. And then the spending patterns, like I was saying, we can see where they shop, where they like to go and things like that. So it, it creates opportunities maybe for uh, partnerships and just understanding your visitors more in depth. Wow. Okay. So there's a dozen things I'd like to unpack there. Just backing up for a minute, Placer AI, Placer.ai is a cell phone data tracking firm. So I'm betting that is the same, I think it's the same company actually, that has been working with urban centers to find out to what degree people are going back to work for real versus what corporate leaders have been saying they've been doing for Salesforce in San Francisco or JP Morgan Chase in, in New York and trying to figure out are people going back and, and using the retail and the restaurants and what's going to happen to our cities, right? It's that kind of thing. So the cell phone data that you're getting is, you said, like kind of filtered or masked or anonymized. It's not saying like, we tracked Elena and she went over here, she went to the left, she went up a block, then she went to the bathroom. Right. It's not that, but it's saying in aggregate, like big data, because what we're talking about, we can say that married with two kids and have an income of this and they come from the borough of, we're in New York right now, so they come from the borough of the Bronx, let's say, that those folks tend to visit the museum two times a year. And we know that from cell phone data. So my big question is, does that mean that uh, placer.ai is, is essentially creating a zone around the museum or the museum's neighborhood? And when I enter that zone with my cell phone, it says, aha, a person to track. Are they already in our records? Let's track them and add data. That's probably simplistic, but do I have that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So the way that it's done, and in fact, that you're right, and the origins of Placer were really related to planning and research, right? And also really for big giant retailers, right? And yeah, so what, you, what we do is we draw a polygon around a site, whether it's a museum or it's a park or a zoo or, or whatever. And we're able to understand within that. So for example, we were when we were um, presenting at AAM, we were working with the Walker Arts Center. And so the Walker has a park, a sculpture park that's adjacent to it, for example. So I was able to draw a polygon around the park and to see what was the overlap of visitors between visitors that go inside to the museum and how many go to the sculpture park, for example. So yes, that's basically how it's done. Wow. Okay. So this you don't need to ask someone for their zip code at the cash register. You don't need... Basically, everybody has a please track me device on their person called a cell phone. And as long as it's masked, because we've all agreed to all of these cookies, 
You can track people to their computer, back okay. to their cell phone, back to a retail shop, back, et cetera, all that sort of stuff. Ada, exactly. do I have that? Do I have that right? That in the architectural sphere where you work, that this must. We're going to be talking about thick data later, but this kind of big data thing is placer.ai must be incredibly important for planning revitalized urban spaces and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And we use a lot of aspects of that type of data as well. HJ works in a variety of different markets. So from healthcare to urban cores to museums to public corporate. And so, yeah, this type of data that Elena is talking about is incredibly helpful and useful to be able to make those types of decisions and help at least have data-driven decisions for clients so they can have that information. And I'm sure, Elena, you can see if you disagree or disagree, but any type of data, even we talk about data, you'll get an answer, but anytime you get an answer, you will always have more questions, right? So it really will always just keep opening up. You answer this trend. Why is that happening? And then you get it to a different. And you, so you're always finding the magic, shiny answer you always say, then why is that? How is that happening? What about that one? And just knowing that any type of data always will help you get more clarity for you to make those really strategic, impactful decisions. So for the dear listener, I want to ask an obvious question. It sounds like this kind of a system, which is a little bit mind-blowing if you think about it. Like I think a lot of our listeners and me might not be thinking, wow, these kinds of incredible digital uh, big data analytics tools. I, I thought they only Amazon or I don't know, Microsoft had these kinds of things. But what you're saying is, nope, we used it for the Walker Art Center, which says to me, as a sort of a shortcut, it's affordable and doable for mid-scale cultural organizations. Am I right about that? Or was it's, it sounds like that's what we're saying, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes and no. <laughs> Primarily, yes. The It is expensive data. It is expensive data to get. And so a lot of museums cannot afford to be regular subscribers of it. And through, through me and Elevative, there are, I help to make it more accessible by kind of defraying those costs and things like that, and then creating a platform for monitoring trends and things, which is something that we are exploring. And I'm exploring actually with Placer about how we can make it more accessible to museums. And the way that I was actually introduced to Placer was through a for-profit client who, because with for-profit clients, everything is masked, right? Everything is private and proprietary. In a lot of nonprofit data, we can get at it to some form or fashion because they're nonprofit. So it's meant to be public and shared. And what I realized was, wow, that no museums are actually using this. And this was when I started my firm about a year and a half ago. And I realized like, why aren't museums using it? So I started using it with my museum clients and realized like that it's extremely powerful and extremely helpful and provides additional data and insights about museum visitors that the museums can't get from their existing softwares. So it's just another another additional layer of incredible data that is helpful. Okay, so Thanks. not only are you doing uh, museum and you did architecture before and everything, and you also have a startup. Like everything about your job is totally cool sounding. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. I'm actually, I am really blessed. I didn't plan, I didn't think the company was going to go in this direction, but it's, it is incredible. So I'm, I'm riding the wave. That's a pivot. <laughs> That's like the typical startup thing. Ada, you were starting to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, and I think what's so wonderful of what Alina has been working on and also making it more accessible in the museum world, there are some working in city with city before architecture, there are some visitors and conventions bureau that have the these types of programs, but again, not all cities have them. 
and have some of these platforms and even have access to them or figure out how how to use them. So I think it's really important as well what Elena is doing to have awareness and also the depth that she's building specifically for museums is much broader than what and believe the application of Placer AI is right now and what you're working with them on. Yeah, I just want to add that I'm I'm also collaborating with the City Science Lab out of MIT's Media Lab and they're the ones who actually first introduced me to big data in the sense that they actually work with a company called um, SafeGraph and then they, they get the data and then they throw it, they have their own algorithms that they you, they built in terms of smart city design. So really understanding this kind of overlaps with what the, and her team at HGA do in terms of planning is looking at traffic patterns and and how they might change with different developments, urban developments. And then how can we build better communities and we can learn a lot through big data to help to help to create better communities, more engaged communities. And that sort of relates to then cultural projects like museums and what's the best siting for them within these urban or smart city designs. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, by the way, we have eight points to discuss today. So here's number three, big data analytics inform business and marketing strategies that support the museum mission. Elena, could you say more about that? You presented the Walker case study at AAM. Maybe a little bit about how that was true with the Walker or one of your other clients? Yeah, sure. I I mean, I think I can actually just say it. Well, I'll speak about one client right now that I'm working with in Connecticut, which is an art museum. And Connecticut, incredibly, has a lot, of, incredibly rich and dense in terms of the number of art museums that it has. And which was really interesting, actually, in terms of ratio of art museums to number of population. It's actually quite, it's quite rich, which is wonderful, which is actually really wonderful. It's actually very unique. It's a unique market. And in that light, my client was thinking, we really want to grow our visitorship. And I said, yeah, of course, every museum needs to. We always need to be thinking about how we can grow or sustain our visitors. How can we diversify our audience? How can we expand our reach? and so forth through programming or exhibits on site and things like that. So one thing that I utilized Placer AI data and big data was, is I ran analytics of looking at where the visitors for the same time period, so I took say calendar year 2022, where visitors were coming from eight different museums and where they overlapped. And within the snapshot dashboard image, I was able to see how many of our visitors from my client's museum were also visiting these other art museums. And what was really fascinating was that most of them, except for maybe some of the larger ones like at Yale, were visitors are coming from very close in. And it shows that within an hour, 50 mile ring or something, where there's maybe five art museums, that a lot of the visit, maybe let's say a two hour ring, that that a lot of the visitors aren't going to the same to eat to the other museum, their peer museum. So is there an opportunity there for my client to collaborate more with these with their peers so that they can have more cross-pollination of visitors, in increase visitation at both sites, for example, things like that. So it was a way to inform their business planning strategy as well as then their marketing strategy and kind of seeing where their visitors are coming from and then where their visitors are not coming from that where they can potentially market to. That's great. A couple of follow-ups on that. First, it sounds like in that case that you actually went looking at the data to find out what the data would tell you versus having a thesis that you wanted the data to prove. You wanted to know where are people coming from, where are they going. Data 
show me something. And then you came up with, as opposed to, uh, I have a theory that you no know, one from this, is, this zip code yeah. is coming, let's check it out, which I think is, is interesting. So you're just, this idea of collaboration with more museums just pops out of the data itself. Did I get that right? Yes, yes. It goes both ways. I think I had a theory, I had a, a theory, and it the data proved the theory that I had, mm-hmm. which was that I really, my theory was that most of these smaller art museums were just really drawing from close in, and the data proved that for me, which was great. But I did learn, what I did learn that was very interesting was where there might have been cross-pollination where I didn't expect it to be. And a lot of that for art museums in particular, not maybe for science museums and children's museums so much, but for art museums, it's, they're really driven by what their exhibitions are at the time. And what and so their audiences probably change and fluctuate a lot, can a little bit more than maybe at other museums. So for different one, a, another yeah. thing, just one more follow-up. You used a couple of terms just now, and I want to make sure that we translate those for our dear listener. You said a 50-mile ring, and then you said, let's maybe do a two-hour ring. Now, to me, I know what that means. It's, okay, here's the venue I'm curious about or the aquarium, and we'll draw a sort of a zigzag circle around it, and anyone within that circle is no more than an hour away. We can draw a bigger circle. It's never quite quite exactly a circle because of where highways are and stuff, but anyone within this circle is two hours away. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners. What what does that mean? Why do you think of one-hour circles? Why do you think of two-hour circles? What does that mean? Yeah, absolutely. When we look at population or markets for any museum or any attraction, we look at it, we slice and dice it in different ways. We look at 50-mile rings, which is kind of has been planning practice, a measurement that a lot of, a lot of places use. At the same time, I also look at driving times because driving times are affected by infrastructure and geography, topography, things like that. And so I look at a lot of different layers. Looking at the, a ring, for example, whether it's a 50-mile ring, a 10-mile ring, or a 100-mile ring compared to a drive time of one hour, two hours, and so forth, help us to really understand what what is really in a day trip market for us and a lot of different tourist statistical agencies use different measurements and definitions of what a tourist visitor really is and in for example in boston where i'm based um, it's within um, the distance that anyone would travel of 50 miles so there's for example a 50 mile ring right we use mapping softwares as well we work with arcgis and things also to understand these different patterns of where we can draw people from. Got it. Okay. Makes total sense. Thanks for doing that. Okay. Now, point number four of our eight, this is our segue point, right? Going from big data to where big data meets thick data. So number four, big data, i.e. numbers alone, can't capture the emotions of visitors' daily lives. I'd love to hear from both of you about that. We've been talking about big data thus far Elena, there are some limitations and maybe ADA, that's where thick data picks up. Am I getting that right? Yes, absolutely. And I think that this is what was really wonderful about and I coming together on this this effort for AAM's presentation is that, for example, I'll give another example. When we're working on a master plan for, for a museum campus, 
And big data can tell me where people go on the campus and how much time they spend in each of these different places. And from that, we can maybe theorize if they're spending more time at this exhibit area or in, in this one place, that might mean that they really like that exhibit. Or it might mean that the exhibit, they can't get it to work. For example, if it's like in a science museum, right? We don't know that. So thick data is able is incredibly powerful when you use big data and thick data together. Thick data adds the other dimension to say what is actually truly going on in the visitor's mind and in their experience when they are at that place. Ada, I'll kick it back over to you. That, that is so yeah. hilarious. Like the idea that someone, you detect that someone's spending a lot of time there and the glass half full attitude is like terrific success. But the glass yep. half empty attitude is total failure. Yeah, exactly. And the, the data supports both of those points of view. That's so refreshing. You got to keep your brain on when you're looking at these numbers. Ada, what do you think? Yeah. And we've had a similar example that was that we dug deeper. And guess what? It was the only place where there was some multiple benches where more people could sit as a family, right? And so you just, you don't know. And yeah, just as Elena said, the thick data, I think Elena, we also gave a similar example. And it really... The big data is the what, the thick data is the why. If you, I would almost put it that way more than quantitative or qualitative. You can get into the to the data geeks that Elena and I are in that way. It also provides the big data is the breadth, the thick data is the depth. And so if you really get to those and it gets the resolution, I think the biggest issue here is to at least highlight a little bit what thick data is. And Elena, you've, you nailed it already. But it really, the way that you look at big data is about patterns and clusters and trends, right? And the job of thick data is to look in between those data points and to look towards more of that resolution. And so I think those are, that's really the value. And we live in such, the reason why this was so important when Elena and I talked about bringing these two together is everything is so focused on big data, right? Even the work I do, they're like, you only talk to 40 people. They're used to questionnaires. The 200, the 500, or the big data that Elena is talking about as well. And so really showing that the value of what thick data is, because we're human, we're complex, we're social beings, and it's really important to understand the way that our visitors, members, donors, community members connect with our spaces, particularly when we're talking brand is emotion, mission is emotion, and, and social impact. And, and we also know that being able we talk about these things, but the data that we use to make informed decision, I'm excited because there's been more value and more attention given to thick data, which is what really matches, I think, what any business or institution and their intention is to do is to make positive impact. So it feels a little bit like the, the point that we're making here. I, I glibly at the top of the show said, big data, thick data, peanut butter, chocolate, we'll make a Reese's peanut butter cup out of it. But it sounds like that's one of the points here that is actually true, that you can make a total mistake with big data. It was seen to prove one thesis. It could equally be used to prove a second one. And you need thick data to, to distinguish between the two and vice versa. Does that hold water? Like you do need the yeah. two of them. Absolutely. Yeah, I, oh, I just, I really think they're the two different sides of the same coin. You, they, you have to look at them at two different angles and be able to make informed decisions through, through, through that, through both of those. Absolutely. So how do you, Elena uh, was telling us earlier that you, if you're on the big data side, you can use placer.ai or other things where 
the people that you want to be, that you're curious about, never know that you were researching them uh, because you're using aggregated data that's in the cloud. I'm guessing, Ada, because you introduce yourself as a design anthropologist, I'm guessing that your work is a little bit more hands-on. It's a little bit more messy. And you're, are you, rather than getting from cell phone data, are you getting your data by going to the people and asking or creating a relationship with them and talking to them? Yeah, there's uh, two ways, I think, to highlight that. One is there's a variety of scales. So design anthropology, the anthropology is helping to unpack the social cultural aspects of an individual and how they are in that social space. And the design part is you have to design it with them. So in anthropology, again, I can get jargony here, but there's emic and edict, which is insider and outsider. Yes, it may be hands-on. You need an outsider, like an anthropologist, saying, why do you do that thing that you do? Like, why did you turn left? Or why, why are you going down the stairs first and not going to the bright windows over there? And then at the same time, you need to ask. They're like, I didn't even know I did that. Why did you do that? A lot of times we bring our own assumptions. We bring our, we look at data points, just like Elena said so brilliantly, and we make our own unbiased assumptions of why we think that's happening. And so it, my job really is working with the individuals that are already in their heads and just helping ask the right questions at a deeper layer about why that is. And so that's a, a lot of my job. There's a variety of ways of do ethnographic research to get thick data. It's also different. And so there's a lot of brilliant ways of collecting qualitative data from, you can still collect qualitative data through questionnaires or interviews, focus groups. Mm -hmm. The what I, the, my lens and expertise that I'm talking about, and there's but benefits to all of them though, is the one that I can speak most, is the ethnographic research. And so that is participant observation. You are there with people, you're meeting them where they're at, and you're also meeting them maybe where they aren't at. So let me give you an example, Jonathan. So for another museum project, how do we engage teenagers? What does that look like? So it was, let's bring teenagers into the museum. We'll have a focus group. We'll have what pizza and this, and we'll just ask them. And it was like, no, the best place to go to learn about what teenagers need is to go where they're already hanging out. And so we went to, worked with some connectors and a teenager, a hub in a neighborhood. And they allowed us there. We got to hang out with them. We went to the basketball car court. We hung out at someone's house with them. We did all these things to understand the context of what does it mean to connect socially? What does it mean the, from the music you play, the activities, how you interact? It's those things that then you can bring in and iteratively work with the teenagers. So this is what we heard. Here's what we saw. How would we design it here to support you for this museum to be a welcoming and inclusive place for teenagers? So that's the difference. So it's good. I'm flashing back to my college anthropology courses and thinking of sort of the Franz Boas thing of going, you're going to embed yourself in a community, in a tribe or whatever, and you're just simply there and you're part of that group, but you're also observing it at the same time. But you have to be there. You have to be observing. You have to be in it. You can't be adjacent to it. And that also reminds me of what a generation ago, IDEO started making famous, the product design firm. It's been in the news lately with their with their uh, design anthropologists and people who are going and just watching Italian housewives use Swiffers and figure out why they were doing what they were doing. And sometimes you ask and sometimes you videotape and sometimes you look from a distance and it's all of those tools, right? Yeah, it's all of them. And I would say, particularly in architecture, there's design anthropologists doing great work from product services to the built environment, the, what I work in. It's really important to, you can have the observation and to see from afar, 
But the engagement, and this is what's really also important in, in thick data, is the engagement aspect that needs to happen. And so asking the questions, understanding more of the why, seeing um, what they're doing from their own point of view rather than the way that I see the world. So that's just as equally as important, Jonathan. So yeah, observation galore, but if you're only observing and not getting their viewpoint of the why, it's essential to have both of those together. So I'm, now I'm curious about something you said, design anthropologists. You said there are a bunch of people in the architectural space who are doing this. How many of you are there? What's are, is there? Is I don't know. Getting back to this thing of, hey, everyone, let's have the careers that my guests have because it's awesome. Right, is unbeknownst to me is the architecture and engineering and contracting field. You can't throw a rock without hitting a design anthropologist or are you the few, the proud? Yeah. You know what? That's a, that's the question we're actually asking ourselves right now. I just hired one other de design anthropologist at HGA. We're, we're growing in HGA itself. But when I was saying design anthropologists, they're doing a lot of great work in services, products, and in the built environment. Oh, in, so I in think other realms, not within services or architecture. Okay, I got it. I got yep. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of work of anthropologists in all of those areas, particularly in AI right now and happening and ethics. And so I think we've met some. A lot of the community of practice is particularly over in Europe and the UK. And so working with a lot of um, anthropologists in the built environment architecture, we're continuing to meet people in the U.S., but we're also one of our goals is to continue to build a community of practice in the U.S. And there's already great groups that are meeting, particularly through through Epic is a great one, the American Anthropological Association. So they have subfields in there. So we are here. We are proud, but we're looking to find more of those discipline and industries connections and overlaps because they do occur. Also, I'm taking notes as fast as humanly possible, but a lot of our listeners are doing the dishes while they listen. They're out for getting their 10,000 steps. So I'd love to ask you after the show to give us some of those show links from some of those associations Ab and the, the folks in the UK. I think we're going to have some listeners who are who would like to be you. I think it would be great to get that. Okay. So let's yeah. do a quick, a quick halftime show and then we'll come right back at it. Quick station identification. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger. And this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And in Apple Podcasts, you're also able to write a review. Give that a shot. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and its sister newsletter. Okay, now back to the show. Today, we are talking with Adahad Mestad and Elena Kazlas about big data meets thick data. And we're halfway through. Next up is point number five, and that is thick data reveals the social, emotional, and cultural context of individuals and their social identity in the place they are in. We added that phrase right before the show, their social identity. I would love to hear more about what all of that means, Ada. Yes. So I think one of the main things when we talk about qualitative data, particularly in built environment, it usually goes to needs and satisfaction. And so the reason why I highlighted that specifically, and particularly at some of the conferences and talks I've been giving, it's not just, it's what do you need and how satisfied are you and what's your comfort level? It truly, the thick data here is to listen and learn about how people self-identify, 
where they feel comfortable and which groups they feel comfortable with as it relates to, right? So you can look at individual needs, but we are social species and we are connected socially in a variety of different ways, not just one. We never have one main identity. And so understanding that and how people view themselves, understanding you can unpack culture in a variety of ways, right? You can look at material culture and how people dress and wear, representation, symbolism, either from how I walk into a building, how a building's designed, to even what's hanging on the walls in that building. And most importantly, who's telling that story? Does Is that reflective of my story and who I am? So there's a lot of those aspects. When we do our research, those are the questions and the key areas of the lens is the word we use, the lens then that we try to really unpack and understand with a variety of different peer museums, with visitors, even from donors to community members and from staff members themselves. So I'm getting this feeling, we have a, my, my firm's motto is design for culture. And so I'm loving this conversation. We think of culture and culture anthropologically as well. And one of the definitions we use is that culture is the, the operating system for groups. It's like The Matrix, the film The Matrix. It's that sort of streaming foreign code that's operating, on the little, little pieces of that code are operating in all of our brains. And that's what regulates how I talk to you, how I relate to you, both of you, my guests. But we can't actually access that code personally. We can only look at what you were just saying, that the material, the things that stick up out of the water from the iceberg. We can't see the iceberg. We can just guess at it through symbolism. When you walk around in a physical space, are you like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix? Are you seeing this sort of stuff all over the place? Or I don't know, Dan Brown and Da Vinci Code? Is that what life is like to be you? Jonathan, I just watched the movie last night, The Da Vinci Code. It is. I just, I watched it last night. Dang. Such a good book, such a good movie. Yeah. So let me, there's a a, a couple ways in answering that. No, you don't get to see, you can see the first layer, so take the matrix, if you take the first layer of truly what's happening, but the only way you can understand and you can see all the, everything that the machine that's happening truly is only by talking to people and understanding how they're even viewing that world in the first place. And so let me give you some kind a, a more concrete example, because I know. So the, the way that we would ask questions, right? When you talk about culture, it's a really big term. So there are some, there's some aspects around First, how and why are you doing those things, right? So, if, or, or what does this mean at this moment, at this place in time to you? Or what is the purpose or function of why you're in this gallery itself or why you're using this cafe or why you're turning a, a certain direction? There is a variety. What is the relationship between where this, I'm using obviously specific, why this museum is here in this land, in this place with this orientation? What does that mean to you from the environment and where it's at? And there's 12 more I could go on because there's a variety of ways of theories in anthropology that we look to say, what are we trying to answer and unpack? And that helps us find those questions so we can get really into the reality or to the matrix of how people are seeing that world. So our job isn't, we don't see it. We are not that that ethos of all knowing. Our job is to, in conversations with individuals, start to see it in the shape of the way they're seeing it. And those insights and nuggets are essential to make big decisions because most of the time we make decisions on how people are seeing their own world who get to make decisions. 
But if we can start saying, oh, wow, we really didn't think about it, how that could be perceived or how someone would feel that way or why someone would feel not welcomed, those are the nuggets and information that we can bring that really help that thick data to understand why people are doing what they're doing. Another quick example of how did how we get there is we get inside people's heads. Elena talked about the walker. Sometimes we're there with them. True ethnographic research, this is the scales of the way that you can do it. If you can have someone and an anthropologist there hanging out with people all the time, great. We know there's budgets and scales and what you can have for research as well. So remote or digital ethnography is awesome. And it's almost just as, as valuable as well because you, sometimes people get biased when you're hanging out with them. And if you're not there, so with the walker, we gave an audio diary. So we gave them a phone. They had headphones. They put the phone in their pocket or their bag. And the, their job was everything that you're thinking, say out loud. And you got some really honest, the, even the tone fluctuations, all of those things are data points in itself. And so we really got to be in their head. It was a lot of great data transcribed, and then we can bring those audio clips specifically to to staff and to say, it's yes, there's something to see a, a quote from qualitative quote, but to hear it and to hear, oh, wow, this is a little loud. I'm over, I'm a little overwhelmed. And you could hear the noises that are happening. You can really get into that moment at that time that matters. So it's real time, it's emotional, it's it's raw. And so that's the stuff that we go for. Wow, that is super cool. I want to hear some of those tips. Wait, no, I don't want to hear some of those tips. Wait, I do want to hear some of the, okay, we should all you hear did. some of those tips. Yeah. Oh, they're fantastic. Actually, for the presentation that Elaine and I gave at AAM, we played some of them. We did voiceovers because confidentiality, safety, we aggregate our data as well, right? We don't, we make sure it's de-identified. But yeah, it can change a conversation and a, and a, and a decision with the emotions that you can hear. Yeah, I just want to add that what I was blown away by that when Ada shared that and shared those examples, and you could hear the inflections in people's voices, their reactions to either areas where, you know, challenging stairs, for example, or excessive confusion about where do they go next, signage issues, or or just reactions to an exhibit. And I think that what's also wonderful about that is that in planning, when I work with organizations, and Ada, I'm sure like you and, and Jonathan, you too, when you work with them, staff and boards have an idea maybe what works and what doesn't work in their organization, right? And yeah, there are visitor surveys that you can do that are extremely informative and that are extremely valuable. And I use them a lot in terms of my planning work, but this adds another dimension where through the software and how auto organized the questions for the Walker example, it was incredible. It opened this whole other wor world to me that we could have visitors at any museum, for any kind of master plan for any place to have visitors' impressions in real time, to, you know, especially looking at problem areas or areas where maybe there's debate between staff and board about what works or what doesn't work, or they think something works that you can hear actually hear it right from the visitor if it actually is working. And that can neutralizes things when decision-making, when, the, when there's potential conflicts internally in an organization. So I that's, love it. That's so great. Just the idea that there's a challenging stair, you're not sure where to go. I'm sure there are a lot of architects. I'm a recovering architect, so I can imagine that there will be those who will have to listen twice to that thing to realize, boy, 
I really didn't design that stair the right way, did I? Okay. It sure looked good in the photo. That's just so amazing. So this well, is related to point number six, which is that thick data is real-time, whole-person contact con context. I'll say that again. Thick data is real-time, whole-person context, and can be scaled. Now that, I didn't have any idea what you were going to mean by that. I was going to assume like that was a typo because how can you scale this kind of embedded anthropological research unless you just multiply the anthropological researchers? But you, this sort of stream of consciousness audio recording is digital and you just give it to everybody. That's one way to scale it. So is it is the myth that ethnographic research isn't scalable, is that just basically wrong? You can use all these methods and just go for it. Yes. I think if you're looking to if you're looking to get two days of participant observation, ethnographic research, two days of information, and that information is going to inform your next five to ten year plan, that that is not the right scale to the level of decision making that you're trying to get to. You will need more depth and more. So I think it's the what you're trying to understand and what that data is going to help you make a decision. That is where some of that scalability, I think, will come in. So I, you need depth for those types of things. But yes, for the questions and the research questions we are looking for, and we always do this with all of our projects, but for the Walker example, it truly was what is a welcoming they're doing such great work already. It was just more, how can we improve? And so that's why it's, let's just, we don't know. So let's just get in their heads and see maybe where they get confused or where they need some additional seating or sensory. And so that's where that's from. One thing I'd love to, I'm going to bridge question five with six too, just as an example that, that Elena gave. And, and you can hold us accountable to Jonathan for timing. But I do think, so take the stairs, for example. So when you talk about a holistic person and what does that mean social and culturally? Another project, not on Walker, we did something similar, the audio, the diaries, the narratives, and someone's like, there's stairs everywhere. We kept hearing it. We kept hearing it from a variety of people that that all had, that, that didn't need walking assistance or mobility at all. And as we continue to unpack that, so when you talk about the value, the the way visitors saw these stairs and all these cool modern stairs and architecture, I'm sure is brilliantly done, said that place doesn't actually, I don't feel like they're respecting or including families with strollers, aging adults that have walking assistance or individuals in wheelchairs. Is this place as inclusive? And maybe I don't want to be connected with a place that's not connected in that. Now that's a value-based key area that talks about an attached alignment to brand and what that means. We talk about stairs as more of someone who can't use them. This was a big aha nugget to say, no, it's people, the representation you have of stairs is that you're not inclusive and individuals that don't need mobility actually don't, it doesn't match their values of how to be part of an inclusive area. So that was a big aha nugget that you can bridge that five and, and the six together. Whole person and really looking through their eyes and what it means to them. Wow. Sometimes a stare is more than just a stare. Wow. Okay. Let's get let's get that word out to all the recovering and unrecovered architects. That's wild. <laughs> okay. Point number seven, thick data anchors strategic programming and operational decisions on insights drive directly from the perspectives of visitors, members, and community. 
So here we're talking about basing our decisions on things we get directly from the people that we're serving. Say more about that and say more about what the other way would have been. Like the way that you phrased it there, I'm thinking like, of course that's how you do it. But implied in the way you phrased it is that that's not always the way you do it. It's not always derived directly from the people that you're serving. What's the other way? Say more about that. Shoot, yes. So the first direction is any of this work, and I've already mentioned this a variety of times, engaging with individuals, our job is to help unpack and understand the, the way that people are already seeing the world. And that is our job. And the only way to do that is engagement specifically and understanding how that person's seen or where they're comfortable, where they're not, how they feel a sense of belonging or where they don't. It is through that lens. So that's why that directly is there. And I think the reason maybe what may be implied, and this is, again, there's value in all of these, but I'm an anthropologist and our work is real time. There's a lot of work that's done around personas and qualitative data, trying to understand. There's even market archetypes and market types, right? That you're like, this person is, they're 20 to 35. They like these things. This is what's happening. And there's value for that. So I use that very clearly in thick data is we are not creating, for me personally, I think personas can be exclusive and we use it directly from the individuals. We don't create personas. So (laughs) the Walker study is another example. There are, there's similarities of different social identities and how people are using the museum. But what we came up with was what is the attributes of how people experience a museum? So instead of saying to to 30-year-olds coming that have a, a toddler or two individuals that are of certain age or someone that's coming for school, we came up with a list of 10 attributes. Am I a first-time museum goer or not? Am I someone that's coming for a specific exhibit or I just need to hang out and be alone with people? I have someone. So we came up with a variety of these, which now allows them to create personalized experiences, right? Through technology, through new ways of their customer relations management tool, all of these things. Now there's new ways of asking questions to personalize your experience that meet you what you want at that time. Because the next time I'm going to be a different persona because I'm going to go with my grandma rather than me coming with my son. So those are the types of, that's those are some examples around that statement specifically too. I just want to add, I want to talk to you about that because we can come up also with questions about how to monetize it too, from the point of view from the museum in terms of helping them with additional earned revenues and things. I I love that. So what do you call that? That's not a persona. What I like about it is that it's almost like a a behavior or an intention of how a person would like to use a museum this time. And when they come back next time, they won't be with a toddler and it'll be night and they'll be with their friends and what do you call that? It's not a persona. It's a blank. I, it's the, the scale of attributes or experiential attributes mm-hmm. is what we've been using. So yeah. So I don't. I'm sure there's a. I'm sure there's a name for it somewhere in a different discipline or a different area. Or IDEO might have had something. But I've been wondering myself because in the exhibitions business, we think, and I've been writing lately about a topic that's an old saw, but people who hear about it for the first time always find it uh, very interesting. Which is likewise. We try not to think about necessarily demographics or even psychographics, but view visitors to an exhibition along a completely different spectrum. And my favorite way of describing it is uh, streakers, strollers, and scholars, that people who are 
if you think of them as literally moving quickly, like a streaker at a baseball game or something, they're only going to see certain things and take away only the most visible things. Strollers will pick and choose, and scholars are the people that will dutifully engage with everything, read everything, tap every touchscreen, and often exhibits are designed for that last group, but they are the rarest group. And we should spend more time in the middle of the bell curve. And for the streakers, who are often people who are distracted by kids, or it sounds bad, they're accompanying their wonderful children or other family members, etc. And I've been trying to think, what is that categorically called? That's not the psychographics. I, I just say that's grouping people by attention span. But it sounds like some of the things you were talking about was were behaviors, like what you intend to do in the museum. I, I just find it fascinating. Whenever I can't think of what the categorical name for something is, I get very excited because it, it uh, seems like it's a it's something that has yet to be named, and therefore that's exciting. Yeah. So what we're calling, yeah, so these are, ex- what, right now, I'm sure you could find, this could be a, a fun game too, finding a better name for it, but experience attributes. So I do think even, uh, we can dive into yours later, Jonathan, too, but streakers, what even, what's the differences in streakers and scholars and how are there different varieties of, so ours is, yes, motivation, expectations, being able to other mobility, social interactions, support needs or responsibility. It's those familiarity. So I think there's, you can even put those in your three that you were just talking about too, to build it out a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. But the thing that yep. triggered my memory of that was when you said, that the person can be in a different experience attribute group the next time they come to the museum, and therefore, they probably could switch while they're there as well. And that's true with streakers, strollers, and scholars. If I go to, I don't know, a natural history museum, and there's a whole exhibition about dinosaurs, and I'm really into that, I'll be a scholar. And then there's a whole you know exhibition later about butterflies, and I'm like, mm, I'm not so much butterflies today, so there I'm a streaker. But the next time, I'm all about butterflies. So I just, I love the idea because personas assume that you're fixed in that persona. You're exactly. a Latina soccer mom forever. Yeah. And you're going to vote Republican if you live in Western Ohio or whatever. But uh, the idea that people change and people aren't fated to be one thing permanently, I think is both wonderfully philosophical, but also very sort of business wise, very useful. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's awesome. Okay. So our last point here is the peanut butter cup, I think. We've told our listener we're going to make a peanut butter cup out of all this, so we better do it. Point number eight, last point, when big data meets thick data, we can support strategic, efficient, and impactful mission decisions with both of them. Maybe I'll go back to you, Elena, and, and kick off talking about, again, how these two things go together. You started the whole show, actually, by saying there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of gray areas, sort of a Venn diagram. There's at least two disks. Oh, that's the shape of the peanut butter cup. They're overlapping. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the more we're talking, the more I'm listening also to what just Ada was saying is that there is a lot of overlap and relation between big and thick data. And I think that another way I was looking at it was just simply scale, that a lot of, we were talking about the psychographics, that big data, there are psychographics that they, that we can capture or look at in terms of what we call a demographics of a visitor. And that through the thick data, we can actually get to better attributes, which I think is really a more fine, more relevant, if you will, attributes for a museum. So I think that the way that how I've been using it, and I think in how we can use big and thick data together, 
was the example that I was talking about. We're looking at a master plan for museum campus that includes different elements and different buildings and understanding how people are moving throughout the site. But then again, like that example, I think that was really, yeah, it's fun. If you look at, if you only look through one lens, if you only look through a quantitative lens, you might be missing really critical qualitative data, which is why that's my, that's the essence and fabric of who I am is always balancing the two, right? The quantitative and the qualitative. And I think that big and thick data are a wonderful example of that, that where Lada was saying that I was saying, why are so many people hanging out in this one spot, which came from big data, that when you understand the thick data element of it, it actually wasn't because that exhibit was working or that spot was particularly intriguing. It was simply because there was a bench there and people were tired. <laughs> they were sitting there for a long period of time. So I think that's a great example of it. So the other ways that I think it can be really utilized and how what I'm very excited about is my clients are is working with the and design anthropologists like Ada and her team in um understanding for any master plan what is actually really working and not working. And visitor surveys, not everybody has the time to do them and all of that by using technology and apps that we can actually make the ability to aggregate and collect thick data so that we can use it in planning, I think is extremely powerful. And this new kind of dawn and age that we're living in right now in planning for museums. So I think that's really wonderful. And the combination of the two of really understanding the larger picture of where visitors are coming from, where you may be overlapping with visitors, or if you're looking to site a new museum, big data is extremely powerful. But ultimately, when you're going into planning, like master planning, or looking at an expansion or making improvements to your site, big data is extremely powerful. And the utilization of both together is critical. Got it. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I it would be fun to have some different opinions. We could offer some, but Elena spot on. That's exactly what you highlighted. I would say, I think it was originally when we talk about even big comprehensive planning or renovations, but you need even both. Like, how do I, this is in museums a lot. How do I create a more welcoming environment? How do I make it more inclusive? How do I have a sense of belonging for visitors? And to understand who even comes into that space who most importantly, who doesn't come into that space and been able to dive even deeper. That's where, so the big scale that Elena talked about, but I also want to say even answering those, that a big question, you need big data. And that's not just thick data. You need to understand even who and how they're coming or where they're not coming from. And so I think there's a variety of scales of both on that. I do also think, and obviously I'm going to live more in the, the kind of the more of the social cultural world, but I think there's even a bigger impact at how to how to have museum individual how, museum leadership make the decisions. There's also two things around even the systems around museums, and so as you you can as you bring big data and thick data together, you can also start finding a whole new set of questions that can say why am I operating the way that I'm operating? Is this a system that always is working because this is how museums work, where's their innovative opportunities to redefine a system? So a system could be very like a point of sale system. It could be the way that people even view museums and who is building the narratives for that museum itself. It could be at very big scales. And so I think there's a whole impact that can be done in addition to planning that's really important here 
and to even come up with questions that you didn't even know that you would need to ask in the first place. And I think you need both of those. I I love that, Ara, and that's absolutely right. I think that your point about the questions is exactly right. And I think that the systems like even your visitor surveys for the listeners that are working in museums, that that things have to always be evolving, right? And that, that I think that kind of rethinking of some of those questions and how you posit those to your visitors in your visitor surveys is is one element, right, of, of how you on the ground in a kind of very affordable way can utilize thick data, right? And it's just, again, asking those right questions, rethinking them um, in the context of how we're really moving to diversify our audiences and reach more audiences and constantly evolve. So that's great. Awesome. I think we made our peanut butter cup. Okay, let's do a quick recap. We had a long list for today, but for folks who are walking the dog, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through it as we always do. List recap. Here we go. Museum research, big data meets thick data. Number one, big data is quantitative. Thick data is qualitative. It's one way you can think about it. Number two, big data on museum visitors includes demographics, origin of where they're coming from, how long they spend there, leisure patterns and spending patterns in near real time. Elena is a business consultant, among other things, so spending patterns are important. Got to keep the lights on. Uh, point number three, big data analytics inform business and marketing strategies to support the museum mission. Uh, point number four, but big data Numbers alone can't capture the emotions of visitors' daily lives. Segue to thick data on that. Point number five, thick data reveals the social, emotional, and cultural context of individuals and their social identity in the place they are in. Number six, thick data is real-time, whole-person context, and can be scaled. Point number seven, thick data anchors strategic programming and operational decisions on insights derived directly from the perspectives of visitors, members, and community. And point number eight, peanut butter cup. When big data meets thick data, we support strategic, efficient, and impactful mission decisions. We talked a lot today about a lot of things, but how was that recap? Did I get it all? Do we have any extra writing candidates? That's good? Yes. Well done. All right. Seeing some nods on the screen. We can see each other. Our listeners can't see us, but we can see each other while we're doing this. So that's good. Adahide and Elena, it has been great to have you on the show. This was awesome. I don't normally have shows where I like want to have the jobs of the guests that are on my show, but if I felt that way, I'm sure our listeners would feel that way. Speaking of that, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Do you have a couple of contact points that we can say? We'll put them in the show notes too, but right here uh, on air, Elena, what, what do you think? What's the best way for people to find you? Yeah, best way to find me is either on Elevative's company page, which is Elevative, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-V.co, or you can email me also at Elena, E-L-E-N-A, at Elevative.co. Got it. There's one L in Elevative. Correct. Right? And no E at the end. Got it. Correct. Oh, you really do sound like a hip startup. Okay, here we go. (laughs) And uh, Adahide, how about you? What are your best coordinates for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on our hga.com, our website there. And so you could just put in search for people and you can find my name there. So you could, the last name's Mestad, M-E-S-T-A-D. Otherwise, you can send an email directly to me at A-M-E-S-T-A-D at hga.com. Otherwise, on LinkedIn as well. Great. Oh, yes. Same thing. I'm also on LinkedIn, too. Also on LinkedIn. I was like, I forgot about that. I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) 
professional and legal. <laughs> both under your full names, you don't have one of those sort of like final initial things or whatever. Got it. Okay. <laughs> no. Terrific. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name. One quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience professionals. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com as well. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top, and it's free. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.